Hands Up Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen. I talk about and analyze MMA fights. Today, we're going to be talking about UFC Fight Night from January 16. You can reach me via email, dukesuppodcast at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter at dukesuppodcast. We're only going to be talking about main card fights here, so the first one up is Punahele Soriano and Dusko Todorovic. Todorovic comes out looking really relaxed, really smooth, and in control. He's got good distance control, and he's doing these real slick lean-away dodges every time Soriano throws. That's going to get him in trouble later, though, because when you're cutting it that close and when you're leaning and putting yourself in a place where it's harder to move your feet, you can get caught by getting pushed up against the cage or with a big combination. You can only lean so far, and you can't out-lean you maybe can outlean two punches or three, but you probably can't outlean four punches or five punches. While I like the movement, it takes a lot. There has to be something else that goes along with it, and Dushko didn't seem to have that today. He was throwing real light punches. Um, he had a nice jab that sort of happened in the middle of a beat. It was short-circuiting Soriano a little bit. But he didn't have a lot of offense. He didn't have a counter when Soriano's stepping in and really overstepping with, uh, with his big punches. So without feeling threatened, Soriano was able to just keep working it and working it. He straightened his punches out a little bit as, as time went on. And he started uh, backing him up, backing Dushko up against the cage. And guess what? That's where the biggest punches landed when he was near the cage or against the cage. So I think having that uh, real fluid movement that Todorovic had only works if you've got some threat to it. If you don't, if the other guy doesn't feel threatened and, and Soriano wasn't threatened, he's just gonna keep dialing it in. He's not gonna be distracted. He's not gonna be worried about what you're throwing at him. So I think Todorovic is going to need a lot more offensive power, countering power, if he's going to be able to do that and continue to be successful. Otherwise, he's just going to get backed up and blasted like he did. The next fight up here is Joaquin Buckley and Alessio Di Chirico. Another first round KO. These first three fights go pretty quick. It was first round, knockout, Di Chirico. Buckley's entries. This fight looked a lot like the one right before it. Buckley was doing big dips and big bobs, taking large steps trying to close the distance. And DeSharico seemed to grab a read on it, and he had an answer. And even before he had an answer, he was throwing enough variety that Buckley had something to think about. In general, Buckley was dipping and either moving his feet or his head laterally, getting off the center line. If you look at the finishing kick... Buckley froze, presumably to block the kick, and his head was dead center. So that, if he had been able to get himself offline, it might not have landed. It probably wouldn't have landed. And if so, it would have landed with less impact. And I think the trouble here with Buckley was that he had pretty good entries. He was, he was closing distance well, but he didn't have a ton of variety in there. He wasn't throwing much to the body. Uh, he wasn't threatening much with leg kicks. He was just uh, closing distance and looking for punches to the head. And that really made it a lot easier for DiCherico to counter. DiCherico's plan, he did a good job of staying away. 
and he had a nice mix of single strikes, though they were just single strikes. I think the reason he didn't want to commit to combinations against Buckley is because if you plant your feet and throw a combination, you're risking a firefight with a guy who's a cannon. So even though combinations are generally thought of as superior to single strikes, I think throwing those single strikes and then getting out of there was a good plan on DeSharico's part. Avoiding combos for once served him really well. Buckley's future, I hope people don't sour on him for this loss. That amazing kick he landed, it doesn't prove he's a world beater or even a world-class talent. It, it proves that he's a, an impressive athlete. He's got skills and he's bold. So I hope people continue to be interested in him and not overestimate what a highlight like that means. Even if he never cracks the top five or to the top 10, he can still be a fun guy to watch and who knows where he could go. But I hope people don't uh, don't crap on him too much for this. So like I said, this fight looked a lot like the one before it, Soriano and Todorovic. The difference was that DiCirico had more offense to offer and he had more counters when Buckley was exposing himself. Soriano and Buckley were doing very similar things and they were both exposing themselves, but Todorovic didn't have a heck of a lot of offense. Like I said, DiCirico did, and that's what happens when you have more offense. You can't just get away from people. It might feel good, you might feel like Anderson Silva, but you can't just avoid. You have to attack, even if the attack is when you're moving backwards. Next fight up is Santiago Ponzinibbio and Li Jingliang. Before the fight, I am beyond amped to see Ponzinibbio get back into it. He looked so good before his health problems and that two-year layoff. And I think this is a really good matchup because Lee's been smashing people. So if Ponzinibbio loses, it's likely to be an emphatic fashion, raising Lee's stock a lot. The alternative would be if somebody came in and eked out a decision win against Ponzinibbio. Ponzinibbio's stock goes down and the other guy doesn't really gain much because you could just say, well, Ponzinibbio lost a lot during his layoff. We don't know what he's still got in him. The result, first round knockout by Lee. So my pre-fight uh, idea was 100% correct. Lee's stock went way up. And we don't know if Ponzinibbio lost a lot. He might have, or Lee might just be that good. But the end result is that Lee picked up a lot of good momentum from this win. The key to the fight here was that Lee was real active and he had good variety with his strikes. He was also way faster than Ponzinibbio. Ponzinibbio was also a little bit hesitant. And you could see both those things, Lee's speed and Ponzinibbio's hesitance in the final combination. Ponzinibbio throws a right hand, it misses. He hesitates for a second, then starts throwing a left hook. Lee throws a very similar combination. Lee misses his first punch, but had no hesitation in throwing his follow-up punches and ended up landing that left hook, which knocked out Ponzinibbio. In the post-fight interview, Lee said he thought his left jab had put Ponzinibbio down, but after looking at the video, he saw it was his left hook. I mentioned this because earlier in the night, Soriano also talked about not knowing what really was going on in the fight. He said something like, I kind of blacked out in his post-fight interview. 
And I thought that it was uh, a rarer glimpse into what fighting can actually be like, that it can be a really strange experience where you think people are maybe more, you think more mental faculties are firing than actually are. So I enjoyed that little bit of inside baseball from those two. Now let's get on to the co-main event, Carlos Condit and Matt Brown. Before the fight happens, I am real happy. This is a great matchup for these guys. They're veteran guys that have been around a long time and they're definitely past their prime. So it was good to see them matched up against each other instead of just being fed to young guys to bolster their records and build fame and, and work them up the ladder. I like when veteran fighters who are past their prime don't just get relegated to stepping stone status. I think it allows the fans to enjoy it more. As a fan, I definitely enjoy seeing those better matchups a lot more than seeing Shogun keep fighting young guy after young guy. The result here was that Conant won by unanimous decision. It was definitely a good decision that he won. However, it's it was not well judged because all three judges gave it 30-27 to Condit, which is frankly embarrassing. Brown won that first round without question. But ultimately the result was okay, so thank God for that. Let's talk about Brown's game plan here. It was good. He started out in round one taking Condit down. Now Brown's not a heck of a wrestler, but he does have heavy hands and pretty good ground and pound. Couple that with the fact that Condit is easy to take down, which means you probably won't spend a lot of energy getting him there, and it makes for a good way to rack up points, and if you're Brown specifically, to do real damage. The downside, of course, is that Condit's a great grappler and he's real good off his back, but if you hold a guy on his back the whole fight, you'll win it. It doesn't really matter how good he is off his back. Brown's plan ultimately started to fall apart because of his cardio. He kept trying to wrestle even in round three when it was obvious he just didn't have enough gas to pull it off. At that point, I think he really should have just stood and looked to land his straights, which were the punches he had the most success with. Speaking of Brown's cardio, it didn't take until the third round for him to run out of gas. He looked real tired after the first round, and that was a round where he spent three and a half minutes on top. After the second round, or even during the second round, he looked completely spent. What I'm interested in here is his training, because his body didn't really tell me anything. Sometimes when a guy comes into a fight, he'll look a little softer than normal, or a lot softer than normal, and it gives you a clue maybe his cardio isn't going to be what it should be, if cardio, or maybe he had an injury that messed things up for him. Whatever it is, you, sometimes a guy's body can tell you what's going on a little bit. Brown just kind of looked like Brown. So, with that complete lack of insight I'd love to know what his training looked like did he have an injury what was his plan is is he one of these guys that just doesn't like doing pure cardio doesn't like doing conditioning work and so instead just does fight training sparring and bags and mitts and rolling and yada yada and that's the cardio he has gotten tired before in his career but this was exceptional so I would like to hear more in the next week, maybe as he does a couple of interviews, what actually went on there. Let's talk about Condit's game plan. In round two, he was still kicking a lot. He kicked a lot in round one. And I think this was a very smart idea because Brown has been vulnerable to the body. We've seen that before. 
and he keeps his hands real low. That's part of what makes his straights effective and uh, by the angle they come from and by giving him the ability to throw it even harder. So that famous Condit head kick that kind of comes out of nowhere, comes at the end of his one-two and then, or his one-two-three and then head kick is really the perfect foil. So I was looking for that head kick to find a home and in round two, more body kicks to find a home. So Condit did a pretty good job with that, um, but he might have been able to land more to the body than he did. I want to talk a little bit about Condit's future. I mentioned that I like this matchup for both guys. I thought it was an even matchup and a fun matchup. And I want to note that the step behind kick trip takedown from Condit in round two was high art. That was the best part of the whole fight for me. And Condit might be done fighting at the highest level. I hope he realizes that. I hope his camp realizes that. But he showed some things like that fancy little takedown that he isn't just one of these past their prime guys that's collecting a paycheck or desperately seeking some shred of his former glory. Conant does have something left mentally and physically. DC and Dan Hardy mentioned title chase oh, re regarding Condit. Get out of here. That's absurd. I really don't want to see Condit delude himself into thinking he's going to make a run for a title or even get close or have that goal in mind. Don't try to climb the food chain. The best matchups for him are guys like Matt Brown, other guys that are a little bit over the hill but have something left to give. That's going to be the most fun. I think that's what people want to see. I know that's what I want to see. And with that in mind, I think Donald Cerrone would be a good fit for that because at this point, Cerrone spent so long just staying near the top but never quite making it to the top. It's pretty obvious he's slid some. He's not done, and neither's Condit. I think that's a fun fight to make. Let's get on to the main event, Calvin Cater and Max Holloway. Before the fight, I didn't have a lot of thoughts about this because I was really just excited to see it happen. One of the thoughts I did have was that Cater is very long. Despite their heights being similar, Max has real short arms, real short legs. Cater does not. So that meant to me that Cater had a real chance to keep Max at bay. Max really puts a lot of pressure on a guys. And so Cater being long and being able to say throw a jab stepping backward is going to give Max problems. That's what I saw going into this fight was the length. I saw that as Cater's best chance to stop the pressure. Between his length and his power, earning Holloway's respect, I thought there was going to be a serious chance that Holloway would end up chasing and getting picked apart and chasing and getting picked apart. That said, I thought Max's timing and his footwork were good enough to get him into range, but therein lies the excitement. Before we get into this, I want to go round by round for this fight, but before we get into it, I want to talk briefly about Max Holloway's training. No, most notably the fact that he is not hard sparring anymore and hasn't done so for the last two camps. I think this is great to hear and I think it's excellent timing considering the fact that the Spencer Fisher piece came out uh, this last week. If you didn't read that, it's on MMA Fighting. Spencer Fisher talks about the incredible amount of damage his brain has taken and the struggles he has with it. 
So it was a really relevant time to bring up the fact that Max isn't sparring. And I'm sure that's why it came up. What it made me think of was years ago, Johnny Hendricks mentioned that he only wears full face headgear. And, uh, and he said something along the lines of, I'm not getting hit hard in the gym. Now, that was around the time he fought GSP, so that's probably been seven or eight years, which is a heck of a long time. But I'm glad to see that the, that the idea of taking breaks and taking it easy in the gym is coming back and that a guy like Holloway proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can take it easier in the gym and still be world class. You don't have to go nuts. Let's get into the fight here. Round one, Max. I notice he's much faster. I notice he also started much faster. Typically, he has built, and everybody talked about this during the fight, typically his round one uh, volume is less than round two, and round two is less than round three. He just gets going and going and going. He's kind of like an energizer bunny that needs to get spooled up. He didn't need to get spooled up this time. He was shot out of a cannon, and I think that was a big part of his success. The biggest part of Max's success, however, was that Calvin wasn't countering. And that's from the jump. That's not after Calvin got beat down. Round one, Calvin's not countering. He's covering. He's moving backwards. Sometimes laterally, especially early on, but he mostly was just taking two, three steps back, putting his guard up and maybe rolling a little. And it wasn't working because Max always seemed to throw just before Calvin was ready. You especially saw this in the early rounds. In the later rounds, Calvin did have some success and, and managed to throw a little more. But in round one, he got short-circuited almost every single time. Max throws his straight punches, his jab, and his right a ton. But the reason he wasn't able to, Calvin wasn't able to counter it, was that Max had a good variety of strikes and he also throws that jab to the body and he throws a straight right to the body so it gives Calvin more stuff to look at and since Calvin was clearly having trouble countering anyway there was no problem there for Max his straights were incredibly effective as well as everything else round two was really more of the same Cater landed a couple of jabs a straight right and, uh, and he even landed a right hook and he did all that when he would throw first that was the only time and the only way he ever had any success in this fight. But just like the first round, Holloway was almost always first. And this is something his corner talked about in between rounds. They talked about him um, not letting Cater reset. And so he, Holloway, generally allowed very little time in between combinations, in between engagements. He was always coming just a little sooner than Calvin was ready for him to be there. And it threw Calvin off. Now, Max didn't always go first. In fact, as the fight went on, he seemed to be deliberately waiting and letting Cater throw. And every time, or almost every time he did, he had something. He had a counter. He had a jab. He had a one-two. He had an oblique kick. He had something to give back to Cater. So Cater's staring down the barrel of, every time I go first, I get touched with something. And if I wait, I don't get anything off. That's got to be a frustrating situation to be in. The biggest uh, success that Holloway had in round two was late in the round. He knocked Cater down with an elbow. Then he stunned him with an elbow. Then he stunned him with a head kick. Earlier in that round, he had knocked him down with a left hook and a straight right in combination. So round two was probably 
I'd love to say round two was the worst round for Cater, but it was not. We get into round three here. About a minute 20 in, Cater throws um, some big uppercuts, and he had done some countering before, but it was so little and so ineffective that to me that was his first serious attempt at countering Holloway. This is when, as fatigue started to set in a little deeper, Cater's bad habit of moving straight back and covering up is getting worse and worse and worse. More and more noticeable, and Holloway's noticing it and taking more and more advantage of it. In the first round, he was stepping laterally to get out of the way, but as he gets tired, that's happening less and less often. Over and over, Max is doing the same kind of thing in this round. He would throw a two or three punch combination, and to get out of the way, Cater would cover and take two steps back. Max seemed to know what was going on here because he would do one, two, three punches, one, two, one, two, three, and the next thing you know, none of it really with any intent, the next thing you know, Cater's got his back against the cage, and that's where Max had his biggest success. We saw some of that in round two and uh, all those elbows that he landed, and it continued to give him better access to Cater he was able to land harder strikes, more strikes, including some digging body shots because Cater kept letting himself get backed up against the fence. I thought very telling and curious here was that at about a minute 30 in, or a minute 30 to go, I think, uh, Calvin covered and just rolled. He covered and rolled, and Max hadn't thrown anything. He had only fainted. And to me, that was the story of the fight. For some reason, Calvin Cater was so ready to cover and defend and not throw anything back. That tells me that little incident where he covered and rolled from feints tells me that he wasn't having trouble countering Max Holloway. He wasn't planning on countering Max Holloway. So that was a really telling moment. So round four was probably the worst round. Round two was bad. He got knocked down. He got hurt. He got stunned, but in round four, really the fight should have been stopped. It was about halfway through the round, Max had him hurt bad. And when they got a little bit of space and they kind of reset and there was a brief pause, Cater was squared up, but he was swaying and wobbling. He wasn't taking steps, he just couldn't stand up straight. Then Max keeps landing. And at that point, that's when I think the fight should have been stopped. So you got a guy that's getting stunned and beat up and not really throwing much back. And he's already been beat up for three rounds. And then you see a, a reaction like that in a pause where you know he could al- you could almost blow him over with a, with a stiff breeze here. He was, he was so hurt he could barely move. And yet... Max was allowed to just keep throwing and throwing and throwing. Also in that round, Max landed a jab that got a real big grimace, and that was the first time I noticed Cater's nose was definitely broken. Bless his heart, that thing's been smashed to pieces so many times. Back to the lack of stoppage here in round four, it reminded me of Ferguson Gaethje. Ferguson had taken a huge amount of damage on that in that fight. He had been uh, he hadn't had really any success since the second round. And he gave a strange reaction, a a shudder, that was rather disconcerting to see. And I think all that stuff put together led to the fight being stopped on its feet. So 
this in my mind is almost the exact same thing cater had even less success than ferguson who did manage to knock gaith g down at one point cater's been taking punches and punches and punches and punches it's clear his body's hurt not just his head and then we get that out on his feet wobble that out on his feet swaying plus more punches a continued inability to get himself out of danger and I know he was still conscious and moving and occasionally throwing back but so was Ferguson this fight was an easy stop in the fourth round easy which leads me into the fifth round where Max seemed to be taking it easy in the early goings he threw his oblique kick a lot and he might have been doing that to stay safe and just make sure he didn't get caught and lose this fight that he had been dominating. Uh, he might have still been respecting Cater's ability and his power. But as a fan, I'm watching that, and it's just starting to feel like an execution where they won't just sharpen the knife. It really was a torture session until Max started taunting Calvin, and it seemed to fire him up a little bit. It fired Cater up. Then, thank God, Cater started throwing back. Max started having a little more fun. wasn't landing a ton of stuff, and it felt a little like a little less like I was watching somebody get bullied. But Calvin was so broken and so busted going into that fifth. I don't think his corner should have even let him come out for it. In between rounds, I thought his corner, we heard the audio, and I thought his corner didn't check on him enough. They asked him if he was good. He says, yes, that's the end of it. They worried about what to do, firing him up, a couple of technical things, normal corner stuff. But I think they should have been asking some specific questions like, how's your nose? Or can you see with the blood in your eyes since he had cuts high on his forehead? Maybe you even try to tell Calvin you want to stop it. Make him show you that he wants to stay in the fight. Now, that last suggestion I am willing to accept might be a terrible idea because as soon as you tell your fighter you want to stop it, they know you've lost, lost faith in them, and that's not going to help them win. So maybe, the, maybe what you should do is if you're going to stop it, just stop it. In any case, they should have known better how to handle that situation. They should have been more interesting in finding out if their guy was willing to go on and, and if he had a real chance, because he really didn't. There's always a puncher's chance, yada, yada, yada. But when you're talking about taking the amount of damage that Calvin Cater took in that fight, which is a career-ruining amount of damage, it's important. It's important to find out if you need to stop the fight as the ref and as the corner. And I don't think his corner was concerned enough about his long-term safety. Now, Cater, of course, is as tough as they come. He's one of these guys that has what I call infinite toughness. You're not going to get him out unless he's out. And he said as much in the post-fight interview where he was surprisingly lucid, although don't count on that too much. It's no indicator that the damage he took wasn't massive. But he said as much, I'm not going down for anybody. That's great. I think that mentality is helpful. And I think that's why you have a ref and a corner. And between those two guys, those two groups, they should be looking out for you to protect those infinite toughness guys like Calvin Cater from taking 
unnecessary is the key word here, unnecessary damage. Calvin lost that fight. It was gone before the end of the fifth round, and he could have made it out taking 60, 70 fewer strikes, come back another day. A few other thoughts now that we're done going round by round here. Calvin's body and his speed, he's he's big for, for 145. I think he makes the limit because he's not a lot of torso. I think he's a lot of arms and legs, so it's a little like John Jones. But I could easily see him at 155, and I think that would probably be a good thing for him, partly because... Max's speed was such a problem. Max is not the fastest guy. He's one of the faster guys at 145. Uh, but things do slow down at 155. And I think Cater would benefit from that. So I would be interested to see if he'll decide to do that. I think he's not. It's not like he's going to tank if he stays at 45. But 55 is definitely an option. Another thought here is Max's finishing ability. He just doesn't have it. And I don't think he really needs it. In general, and especially at the top, more fights go to decision than not. So being able to win a decision like Max does is probably more useful than being a big finisher. That is it for the show today. Remember, you can get in touch with me, dukesuppodcast at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter at dukesuppodcast. There's fights on the 20th, fights on the 23rd, and I'll be back for at least one of those. See you next time.